You're listening to the Hope Assembly podcast with Pastor Ryan Day. For more information, you can visit us online at hopeassembly.org. Please enjoy this week's sermon. Hey, good morning, church, and happy Resurrection Sunday. I know this situation isn't ideal to be in our homes, worshiping from a distance or from afar, but you know what? We're going to make the best of it. Today is the day that the church celebrates the the resurrection of our Lord and Savior, and we're not letting anything get in the way of us doing that. So thank you so much for tuning in, and I hope today that this sermon, this message will touch your heart, maybe, maybe inspire you a little bit to live more into the resurrection life that is offered to us, His people. Now, Like most pastors, I myself am constantly wrestling with what should we share on Resurrection Sunday. It comes around every year. How do we make it more exciting? How do we make it different? How do we bring a different angle or something really epic to share? And you know, over the years, I've kind of thought about what is there to say that is new about the resurrection? And the truth of the matter is, there's nothing new to say about the resurrection. That, my friends, is what makes the resurrection trustworthy, what makes it stable and unshifting. See, Resurrection Sunday must be more than a metaphor to us or more than just a moral message, some sort of epic moral message. No, the entire gospel story hinges on this day, on Resurrection Sunday. Now, to quote the brilliant uh, Tish Harrison Warren, and this is going to be maybe a little bit jarring for you, but stay with me. To quote Tish Warren, she said this, if Easter is only a symbol, then to hell with it. I know that's a strong statement. She goes on in her article for Christianity Today to say, or to quote from John Updike's poem, Seven Stanzas at Easter, and here's what she goes on to quote. Let us not mock God in metaphor analogy, sidestepping, transcendence, making of the event a parable, a sign painted in the faded credulity of earlier ages. If Jesus' cells disillusion did not reverse, the molecules re-knit, the amino acids rekindle, the church will fall. Those are strong statements and statements that I truly believe. This resurrection story has to be more than just a moral message. If it only is a moral message, it will fail us. us. If it's only a parable, it's not enough. Why does this resurrection story matter? Well, it matters in short because we either believe the resurrection or we don't believe the resurrection. There isn't really some sort of middle ground here. If the resurrection is simply just a moral platitude, it holds no hope for our darkest moments. A sort of things are tough now, but they're going to get better motivational poster isn't sufficient, especially not when we're talking about the resurrection. However, if the resurrection is the radical event that we claim it to be, then our response to this phenomenon is paramount. That's kind of what I want to talk to you about today, what I want to share this morning. What should our response be to the resurrection? Now, the answer is complex. It's not simple. Why? Because we are complex people. And so many people respond differently to this question or even to the resurrection itself. However, there are a few universal responses that we are called to. 
And these responses, I believe, are first seen in the women who were intent on tending to the body of Jesus that resurrection morning. You heard it earlier as Heather and Josh read from Matthew chapter 28, verses 1 through 9. And I want to talk about that story where the, uh, the women, Mary Magdalene and Mary of Bethany, head off to uh, tend to the body of Jesus, to anoint the body of Jesus. And think about it for a moment, these women who are on their way, this, this very particular morning, the very first Resurrection Sunday, it seemed as though that morning, the first Easter Sunday, that none had any expectation of the Resurrection. There was no celebration. There were no songs of victory sung. There was no large gatherings together. The world had seemingly moved on as if nothing had happened. But in fact, the entire world had radically shifted. And Mary of Bethany and Mary Magdalene, the, the faithful ones, the ones who never wavered, they were present at the trial. They were present at the crucifixion of Jesus. They were present at his burial. And now they've come to anoint the dead body of their, quote, Savior, the one that they hoped would be their Messiah. And they fully expected, you have to understand this, they fully expected Jesus to be there, lifeless, his body to be there, there lifeless in the tomb. You can imagine with me for a moment, just put yourself in their shoes, the, the emotional roller coaster that they have gone through over the last week. Uh, think about when we celebrated last week, uh, Palm Sunday, the triumphal entry of Jesus. They, they were there as the people were shouting, Hosanna in the highest, Hosanna to the son of David, as they were waving palm branches and, and, and coronating a king, it would seem. Uh, they were there. Um, when, when, when Jesus cleansed the temple and turned the, the, the tables upside down and chased out the animals and, and said, my house is to be called a house of prayer and you've turned it into a den of thieves. How dramatic that moment must have been. They were there for his, all of that discourse. They were there um, when, when Jesus went up into the upper room with the disciples for the last supper. When he broke the bread and he took the cup and he shared, this is my body broken for you. This is the blood of the new covenant. He said, drink this. As often as you eat this and drink this cup, you, you're proclaiming my death. They were there when Jesus got up from the table and washed the disciples' feet. They were experiencing all of the emotions of this week. They were there when Jesus went with the disciples to the Garden of Gethsemane and asked them to pray. They were there indeed when Judas led the garrison of soldiers into Gethsemane and betrayed Jesus with a kiss. You can imagine their hearts dropping, sinking in their chest as they see Judas, one who had been with them and among them, kissing their Savior in betrayal. And they were there as they led Jesus off. They were there for the trials, multiple trials through the night and into the morning. They were there when Jesus was, where the crowds were yelling, crucify him, crucify him. They were there as Jesus was beaten, 39 lashes. They were there as the mocking took place around Jesus. They were there as he traveled up the Via Dolorosa. 
or the way of grief. The road to Calvary carrying his own cross. They were there when he stumbled and Simon carried that cross. They were there when they nailed Jesus to the cross and lifted it and dropped it into the ground. They were there as they watched their Messiah, their Savior, convulsing for hours on a cross, bleeding profusely, a crown of thorns beaten into his brow, a makeshift sign above his head, the king of the Jews. They were there when he breathed his last breath. They were there when they took him down off of the cross and placed him in the tomb. They were there in the silence of Saturday, wondering what has happened. And I think too often what happens for us because we know the story so well and we love a good celebration, that we rush through the emotions of the week looking for Sunday. I had to even challenge my own self. I watched people say this regularly throughout the week. Oh, it's Good Friday, but Sunday's coming. We want to quickly like reaffirm everybody that the resurrection is coming, but that is not what these women felt in this moment. They did not feel that Sunday was coming. They did not feel that the resurrection was coming. They had to sit in the silence of Saturday. They had to deal with the emotions of everything they had seen their Savior go through. And now here comes Sunday morning, and it seems seems as if everybody is forgotten, and yet Mary and Martha, the faithful ones, are on their way, excuse me, Mary and Mary, the faithful ones, are on their way to the tomb to anoint the body of Jesus. The despair that they felt from Friday into Saturday lingered into Sunday morning. Now, Josh and Heather read earlier Matthew 28, verses one through nine. I love how the message version frames the last part of that text. After Martha and, and, and or Mary, excuse me, and, and Mary show up to the tomb, there is an earthquake, the stone is rolled away, there's an angel that declares to them, he's not here, he has risen. And then the angel tells them that they're supposed to go ahead to Galilee to tell the disciples. And here's what the message version says in eight and nine, verses eight and nine of Matthew 28. The women, deep in wonder and full of joy, lost no time in leaving the tomb. They ran to tell the disciples. Then Jesus met them, stopping them in their tracks. Good morning, he said. They fell to their knees, embraced his feet, and worshiped him. There are three things that I see that should be sort of a universal way in which we respond to this idea, this very real event of the resurrection that changed the entire world as we know it. First of all, these women were full of joy. And our response to the resurrection should also be one of great joy. We celebrate today. Today is not a somber day. Today is a day of celebration, a day of shouting, a day of great joy. Why did they have great joy? Well, Jesus, their Messiah, he is now alive. The one that they saw crucified, the one that they saw beaten, the one that they saw laid in the tomb. The tomb has been opened up. The grave has no longer won and their Savior is alive. 
the angel says to him, who you're looking for, this Jesus, he is not here. Why? Because he has risen as he said. Jesus had been telling them all along, although none of them seemed to catch it, that he was going to die and that he would indeed be raised on the third day. Matter of fact, in John chapter 16, Jesus tells them, a little while, he says, and you will see me no longer. And again, a little while, and you will see me. He goes on to say, truly, truly, I say to you, you will weep and lament, but the world will rejoice. You will be sorrowful, but your sorrow will turn into joy. He goes on to say, you have sorrow now, but I will see you again and your hearts will rejoice and no one, catch this, no one will take your joy from you. Jesus in John 16, before any of this went down, I was trying to explain to them, listen, I'm going to go away for a moment and you're going to weep about it. And it seems like the world's going to be rejoicing. All of the powers of, of the darkness of the universe are going to be rejoicing over my death. You will weep, but only for a little while. And then you will rejoice. And the joy that will come from my resurrection, no one can take that from you. Think about it. Their joy is further fueled as they look where Jesus had laid before. The stone had been rolled away. And listen, the stone wasn't rolled away to let Jesus out. No, the stone was rolled away so that the disciples could look in and testify to the fact that the tomb was indeed empty. Jesus is the great joy giver. Think about it. He is first introduced as the incarnate one with glad tidings of great joy through a virgin womb. And here, now he is announced, resurrected with great joy through an empty tomb. Jesus' life is bracketed with these two amazing events Jesus shows up putting on flesh in the world through a virgin womb, lives his life, is crucified and buried. And yet the other bracket is not that he's buried. The other bracket is that he is resurrected and that it is an empty tomb, a barren womb and an empty tomb, both bringing great joy because Jesus is the king. And here as they look into this empty tomb, what do they see? That death has been defeated. They see that despair has been replaced with this uncontainable joy. <clears throat> we respond with joy because in the resurrection, we see the beginning of God making all things new again. Think about that. I think what Floyd W. Tompkins says, he says, let the resurrection joy lift us from lowliness and weakness and despair to strength and beauty and happiness. The other thing that I see here, not only are they full of joy, but the scripture says that the women were deep in wonder. <coughs> Excuse me. Deep in wonder. They are met at the tomb by an earthquake and angels. <clears throat> This would cause fear, wonder, uh, awe, reverence for anyone in this moment, right? Even the guards, the scripture says, fell down like dead men. They were, they were so caught off guard by the earthquake and the angels and the rolling away of the, the stone 
that they, they essentially passed out. They fell down like they were dead men. Why? Because of great fear and wonder. Think about the earth shook in an earthquake when Jesus died, almost as if the earth itself was weeping over the death of its creator. And here we see the earth shaking again at the resurrection. Why? In a rejoicing celebration that he is now alive. But think about the implications of this moment for these women and also for us. At this moment, the resurrection reality demands a decision. It demands a decision from the women. It demands a decision from us today. What is that de decision? Well, I believe that this resurrection moment is pregnant with this, this trilemma, if you will, that was made popular by the likes of Watchman Nee and C.S. Lewis. This trilemma idea that this Jesus, whom they crucified, who is now resurrected, he is either a liar, a lunatic, or he indeed is Lord. And the reality is the resurrection forces us in some ways to have to choose which one do we believe. Is Jesus a liar? Is Jesus a lunatic? Or is Jesus Lord? And see, I think these women were filled with great wonder, deep in wonder, because they were recognizing in this moment, he is who he said he is. He is Lord. And their hearts were filled with joy, and their hearts were filled with this awesome, reverent wonder, this holy fear that he is who he said he is, the King of kings and the Lord of lords. Watchman Nee described this trilemma of liar, lunatic, or Lord like this. He said, first, if he claims to be God and yet in fact is not, he has to be a madman or a lunatic. Second, if he is neither God nor a lunatic, he has to be a liar, deceiving others by this lie. Third, if he is neither of these, neither a liar or a lunatic, he then must be God. Our response to the resurrection should be one of great joy. He lives. He's overcome death, hell, and the grave. And it should also be one of great wonder, of awe, and irreverence because he lives because he has been resurrected from the grave, everything about the Christian story hinges, everything about the gospel hinges on this moment. And if this moment is true, and I believe that it is, then we have to reconcile with the fact that he then is God. He is the King of kings and the Lord of lords. He is who he said he is. And our response should be one of great awe, reverence, wonder, and fear that he deserves all the praise because he is the resurrected Savior. And then the third thing that I see that happens here with these, with these wonderful women, isn't it a beautiful thing that God chooses to tell his story, the first moments of the resurrection story, through these beautiful women who are filled with joy and wonder? And they run on ahead to go tell the disciples. And Jesus meets them on the path. And he says to them, good morning. I love that. He says, good morning to them. And what do they do? The scripture says that they fell down 
that they embraced his feet and that they worshiped him, that they worshiped him. They fell down and they worshiped him. What is the other option in this moment if you believe Jesus to be Lord? What is the other option than to fall down, to cling to him, and to worship him? If indeed we're filled with great joy because he's conquered death, hell, and the grave. If indeed we're filled with deep wonder, reverence, awe, and fear because he said he is, because who he said he is, is who he is, that he is alive now because he is Lord and Savior. What other options do we have except to fall down and worship him. He is worthy of every bit of our worship. The resurrection ultimately calls us to respond with worship. Why? Because worship is trust. It is a giving of our lives over for the sake of the kingdom of God. I want to ask you today, whoever is watching this today, have you given your life over in worship, in trust to God? If you believe the resurrection to be true, if you believe it to be more than just some moral platitude, some sort of nice story that we tell once a year, if you believe this event to be a real life event, then it calls us to worship. It calls us to lay down our lives and trust him as the one true living God. I think about this is probably what Paul was saying in the book of Romans as he wrote to the church in Rome, in chapter 12, verse 1, he says, I appeal to you, therefore. You have to read all the 11 chapters before to get the therefore. He's been talking about the kingdom of God. He's been talking about Jesus. He's been talking about the gospel story. He says, taking in consideration everything that I've shared with you up to this point, I want to appeal to you by the mercies of God that you would present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God. And he finishes it with this, which is your spiritual worship. In effect, Paul's saying, if we really consider the gospel story, and if we believe it to be true, he's saying that I'm beseeching you, I am begging of you, offer up your lives as a living sacrifice. This is reasonable worship. If Jesus is who he said he is, then his, his um, life that he lived, his death and his resurrection deserves us giving up or laying down our lives as living sacrifices unto him. My life does not belong to me. It belongs to you, God. You are the transcendent one. You are the resurrected one. And in you, I find great joy, great wonder. In you, Lord, in you alone, will I worship. I want to finish with a quote again from Tish Harrison Warren. It's a little bit of a longer quote, but stick with me on this quote. I think it wraps up this idea fairly well. The truest fact of the universe this Eastertide is not death tolls, emptied sanctuaries, or overcrowded hospitals. The truest fact of the universe is an empty tomb. The resurrection is the only evidence that love triumphs over death, that weakness prevails over strength, and beauty outlives ashes. She goes on to say, if Jesus is risen in actual history, with all the palpability of flesh, fingers, bone, and blood, 
There is hope that our mourning will be comforted and that death will not have the final word. See, our hope is in the resurrection of Jesus. And because this is a real flesh and blood event that Jesus died and that he rose again, we can place all of our hope and all of our trust in him, even in our darkest moment, because Jesus showed us that the darkest moment in all of history, when they crucified the King of Kings, when they crucified indeed God himself, that dark moment could not keep him in the grave, that he overcomes death, hell, and the grave, through the resurrection, and in overcoming those things, he is now working to make all things new. And though we may experience temporarily the difficulties of this life, even the difficulties of this moment, in this pandemic that we're, that we're currently facing, we have hope because we know that death will not have the final word. So I wanna encourage you this Resurrection Sunday as you gather with your family, as you eat a meal together, as you maybe discuss what it looks like to be a people of the resurrection, I want to encourage you, let your hearts be filled with joy. Let your hearts be filled with wonder and take that joy and wonder and turn it over in worship to the one who is worthy. Man, I hope you have a beautiful Easter Sunday. Let me pray for you. Father, we're so grateful that you sent your son into the earth, that you so loved the world that you sent your only son, that whoever believes in him would not perish but have everlasting life. We thank you, Jesus, that you came in the flesh. You laid your life down. You said, nobody takes my life from me. I lay my life down and I will pick it back up again. We thank you that you lived the life that we could not live, that you died the death that we could not die, that you came up out of the grave demonstrating victory over the most final thing that we understand, death, hell, and the grave, and that you provided for us this new life that's found in you in you alone. May we trust it. May it fill our hearts with joy and wonder. May we worship you, the one true King. In Jesus' name, amen. I want to encourage you this Resurrection Sunday, if you're tuning in, if you've never made a decision to follow Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior, to lay your life down, perhaps in light of this resurrection story, you're thinking to yourself, I really need to give my life over to this idea of the kingdom of God. We would love to talk to you. Reach out to us in the comments below. You can direct message us. You can send us an email through our website. We would love to hear from you. Until then, God bless you and have a wonderful, joy-filled, wonder-filled Resurrection Sunday. Thank you for listening. It's our desire to lead people to know Christ and to make Him known. If you'd like to support the ministry of Hope Assembly, go to hopeassembly.org. Thank you for listening and God bless.